So uh, we're continuing our study uh, of First Thessalonians uh, today. And um, as Josh mentioned last week and Kyle mentioned the first week, this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young church that he had planted. He and Timothy and Silas had planted and was filled with all of these young believers, with all of these questions about the faith. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy had gone to Thessalonica to plant this church. The church got started almost immediately. It faced persecution, so much so that they ran Paul and Timothy and Silas out of town after only a few months. Can you imagine starting, not just starting a church, can you imagine starting a business, a company, whatever, and with And in two months or three months of starting it, you could no longer be on site. Like you could no longer be directly involved in how vulnerable that would make you feel. And Paul was incredibly concerned for this new church plant, this new group of believers. He wasn't able to go back to Thessalonica. And so his response was to write a series of letters. One is the one that we're looking at first Thessalonians to help strengthen their faith. Kyle and Jess, I thought, did, uh, or Josh, did an amazing job kicking off the series and uh, in dealing with chapters one and chapters two of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to move past chapter three, and today we're moving into chapter four. In chapter four, Paul gives these new believers some very practical instruction on three very important issues. Sex, work, and death. Sex, work, and death. All in one chapter. Like that's what you get in this chapter is his guidance, practical instruction on sex, work, and death. And when you think about it, those are pretty timeless issues. Like they're certainly relevant today and not just in the church, like They're relevant in culture. There are all kinds of conversations going on in our culture about our sexuality, about work, about the workplace, about our health, about lack of health, all of that kind of stuff. And Paul's overarching message on all three of these incredibly relevant issues is summed up in verse one when he says this. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living, but now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more and more. In other words, Paul is saying that the kind of life that we have been created to live is a kind of life that is pleasing to God. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He actually tells us what a life pleasing to God looks like in these three areas of life. And it's very countercultural. In fact, the main reason that the church is facing persecution, the main reason that Paul and his buddies got kicked out of Thessalonica was because of how countercultural this teaching was in that day and continues to be countercultural. First of all, here's what Paul says about sex. Hang on. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. 
not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and have warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. So Paul tells the Thessalonians to avoid sexual immorality. Now, the word immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. And as you can probably tell from just the way in which that is pronounced, it's the word from which we get the word pornography. But its meaning is so much deeper than that, so much bigger than that. Porneia is any kind of misuse of sex. So it includes sexual abuse, it includes sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, sexual unfaithfulness, sex intimacy outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, like it means all of that. It includes all of that. And Paul addresses this section, interestingly enough, specifically to men. Now, the reason that he addresses this to men is not because men are the only ones who need to avoid sexual immorality. It's because throughout history, porneia has always hurt women more than it has hurt men. Porneia was often the way that men controlled women. Porneia was all about male power and privilege and sense of entitlement. In fact, in Paul's day, most men had sex with three or four women. First, there was the man's wife, whose role basically was to be respectable in culture, to manage the affairs of the home, to bring money into the family, either from her family or from work, and to bear the man's legitimate heirs. But then there was the mistress, and that meant something very different than it means today when we talk about a mistress. A mistress was someone who was typically viewed as an intellectual equal to the man that became a kind of companion for him. They, they did things together. The mistress provided intellectual and cultural stimulation as well as providing sex. And then there was the man's concubine. And that was usually a servant woman that was primarily just a source of sexual satisfaction. And then in addition to all of that, most men had sex with prostitutes. Like that was the culture of Paul's day. There was a complete disconnect between sexual intimacy and any real commitment. Men were completely in control of these relationships. They didn't have to take any real responsibility. They could discard anyone at any time that they wanted. It was all about male power and privilege and sense of entitlement. And Paul introduces a sexual ethic that turns that system on its head. 
He calls men to steward their sexuality in the context of the covenantal relationship of marriage. To steward their sexuality in a way that is holy and honorable. To steward their sexuality in a way that does not abuse or take advantage of anyone. Paul says something radical and completely countercultural. He says, intimacy and commitment are inextricably connected. Intimacy and commitment are inextricably connected. But there's something else that Paul is saying. Paul is saying that sex is good, but sex is not God. He is saying that sex should not be deified. In Paul's day, there were what often were referred to as the mystery, the mystery religions. And the mystery religions deified sex. Sex was actually a part of the liturgy of worship of these religions. Now, there are some weird denominations out there today, but I don't know of any denominations where sex is a part of the worship liturgy. But the deification of sex is still very much a part of our culture. In fact, the deification of sex is a part of our cultural dogma. Sex is glorified. Sex is lifted up as the greatest good. People find their identities in their sexual attractions or sexual behavior or gender. And Paul rejects all of that. In fact, in Galatians 3, he says, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That is your identity. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, don't find your identity in your ethnicity or in your social status or in your gender or in your sexuality. Find your identity in Christ. He says, let your identity in Christ shape the way that you view everything else. Let your identity in Christ shape the way you view yourself, shape the way you see yourself, shape the way that you see the world, shape the way that you see others, break the categories that the world puts identity on. On, Like, let your identity in Christ shape the way you view everything else. Paul says, sex is good, but it is not God. It is not the source of your salvation. Sexual exploration is not the thing that will set you free or help you find yourself or bring you ultimate joy or help you deal with the brokenness of this world. It will not solve your problems or clarify your purpose in life or help you understand why you are on the face of this planet. It is not the path to fulfillment or meaning or wholeness. Paul says all of that, all of that is found in our identity in Christ. The second area where Paul calls believers to live a life pleasing to God is in their work, their vocation, the things that they do. 
And this is what Paul says about work. Starts off in a little way that you don't think it's connected work, but it is, trust me. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Can I get an amen for that? Wow. How much would be solved in the world if we just minded our own business? How many shows would go off the air if we just minded our own business? Uh, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, there's so much to unpack here, and some of it, like, I want to unpack, but I can't, but there's a few things that we, we have the time to unpack. When Paul starts this section off by talking about love, our natural response is to say, like, what does loving each other have to do with our work? What does loving each other have to do with our vocation? But Paul says that the two are very much connected. He says that work is one of the ways that we love others, that you love your brothers and sisters by, by doing your part. You, you love your brothers and sisters by not expecting everyone else to, to carry the load, whatever that load is. Have, have you ever worked with someone or lived with someone who was unwilling to do their part? Don't look at them, okay, like, like right now, don't look at them, but, but like, have you ever like worked with someone who's, who just like was unwilling to like do their part, someone who expected everyone else to carry the load? It, it doesn't feel very loving. Like no matter who you are, no matter what limitations that you may have, there's always something to do that can help to carry the load, even if that something is just having a really positive attitude, there is always something we can do to carry the load. That's what Paul's talking about there. And then in verse 11, when Paul says, work with your hands, you go, well, that was back in an agrarian culture and that doesn't apply. No, no, no. The culture to which he was speaking, the context of the culture in which he was in when he was saying work with your hands, it was what he was saying was flying in the face of the dominant culture of his time. The Greeks and the Romans believed that certain kinds of work were de degrading, like manual labor was degrading. Uh, retail work was degrading. You had to get into the world of the thought. You had to get into the world of the mind to participate in work that was not considered degrading. But that does not square with scripture. Jesus was a carpenter, or maybe more accurately, a stonemason. God dug ditches in the ground to create us, to create humanity. He put his hands in the soil. He got dirty. For Paul, 
It doesn't matter whether you are repairing streets or collecting garbage or preaching a sermon. All work has value. All work has dignity. Because work that is good is work that benefits others. It contributes to the common good. It makes the world more livable. It, it brings order out of chaos. Parents do that every day. They bring order out of chaos. And it doesn't matter what you are getting paid or if you are getting paid at all. That's not the point. According to scripture, the primary purpose of work is not to make money and it's not to find your identity. The primary purpose of work is to connect your passions to something that benefits others, to something that contributes to the common good, to something that makes this world a little bit more livable place to live in. So Paul says, don't let the culture determine the value of your work. We so often allow the culture to determine the value of what we do. And Paul says, do not let the culture determine the value of your work. If what you are doing taps into the gifts and the talents and the passions and the ability and the calling that God has given you, if it's helping others, if it's making the world a little bit more livable, if you are bringing a little bit of order out of the chaos in the world, if you are contributing to the common good, then your work has value. I was in Lebanon not long ago when the garbage, the folks that collect the garbage decided not to collect the garbage. And all of a sudden, the job that no one in culture thought was important became the most important job in the world. That chaos reigned. <laughs> that things could not function. All work has value. All work has dignity if it contributes to the common good. The third area where Paul calls believers to live a life pleasing to God is the way that we deal with death. This is what he says. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Can I get an amen for that? Therefore, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul is reminding us that the great enemy of humanity is death. That death will spend all of your life stripping you of your loved ones and then ultimately it will strip you from 
your loved ones. And Paul says that should cause us to, to grieve, that it should cause us to, to rail against death, to not be at peace with death, that we were not created by God to die and lose the people that we love. That all entered the world because of sin. That all entered the world because of brokenness. We were created by God to maintain those relationships. We were created by God for those relationships to last, for those relationships to continue. That's why when Jesus went to the grave of his friend Lazarus, we're told that he went roaring to the grave in anger. Even though he knew, he knew that in just a moment, he was going to, to raise Lazarus from the grave. And still, in that moment, he grieves and weeps and rails against death. Why? Because death is the enemy. So Paul says, go ahead and grieve. Go ahead and rail against death. But don't grieve like those who have no hope. Because grieving without hope will destroy you. So what is this hope? Well, Paul tells us in verse 14 that we read. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. On the cross, Jesus railed against death. And when he rose from the grave, he conquered death once and for all and made it possible for those who follow him to rise from the grave as well. His resurrection became our resurrection. His victory over death became your victory over death. His hope became your hope. That's what his death and resurrection means. And then in verse 16 and 17, Paul describes what will happen when Christ returns. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that word meet is a, is a technical term. Paul uses it for a purpose. When a conquering king came home victorious in battle, the people would go out to meet the king as he approached the city. And then the king, surrounded by this joyous and celebrating mass of humanity, would make his way back into the city. And that's the scene that Paul is describing here. Paul is not describing a scene where all of the people who are in Christ meet Jesus in the air and then go back to heaven. He's describing a scene where heaven comes down to earth. Can I get an amen for that? He's describing a scene where Jesus' prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven is completely and totally fulfilled. We get glimpses of that kingdom. We talk about in Fairfax as it is in heaven. 
May your kingdom come on earth, in my marriage, in this community, in this space, in the thing that I'm doing, in the the part of my world where I live. May your kingdom come. But at its best, the kingdom that we see this side of Christ's return is just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse of what will happen when Christ returns. When God's kingdom, God's heavenly kingdom and earth will become one like a bride and a groom on their on their wedding day. When all of that, that's why when we grieve, (laughs) there will be no there will be hope even as we grieve because Jesus doesn't want to just redeem our souls. Jesus wants to redeem everything. Jesus wants to redeem our bodies. Jesus wants to redeem all of the brokenness in this material world. Jesus wants to recreate a world where there will be no more suffering, no more disease, no more cancer, no more epilepsy, no more dementia, no more pain. That's why when we grieve, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Because in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of all the loss, if we have put our faith in Christ, we have hope. Can you say it with me? We have hope. So Paul says, grieve the darkness, but do not fear the darkness. Grieve death. But do not fear death. Grieve the darkness in this world. But do not fear the darkness. Because Jesus has overcome the darkness. And that gives us hope. Even as we grieve. Today as we take communion. Whatever it is that you are grieving. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the death of a relationship. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Maybe it's the death of a season of life that you thought would bring you to a different point than where you find yourself today. Whatever it is that you are grieving, Wherever it is that you have experienced loss, do not grieve as one who has no hope. Remember that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is hope. You do not have to fear the darkness. You can grieve the darkness. Because of what we are about to celebrate, you do not have to fear the darkness. God, as we take communion today, as we take the cup, as we take the bread that was given for us, that was broken for us, as we remember what you did on the cross and what you did after the cross. 
as we reflect on your sacrificial death and your glorious resurrection. We pray that whatever it is that we may be dealing with, whatever it is that we may be grieving, whatever deaths we have experienced, whatever loss we have experienced, that we would not grieve like those who have no hope, that we would grieve the darkness, but we would not fear the darkness because of what you have done for us on the cross. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen.